Well, good morning, First of Ann. How are we? It's good to be with you this morning. I think I heard a little one out there say good. I'm very happy for the interaction. Yes, that's a young Pentecostal child in the making. Ah, right there. Hey, my name is Jamie Trussell. I'm thankful to be here with you. Thankful that Cole's given me the opportunity. Him and Lynn are dear friends of my wife and I. Many of you know my wife, Shanna. She can't be here with us this morning, but she sends her greetings as First of Ann certainly has a special place in her heart as well, and, and uh, preaching considered, I'm doing something this morning that I oftentimes would not advise. So normally, we would exposit a set passage of Scripture, and yet this morning we're going to be doing a bit of a survey, uh, an overview. And one temptation that I may ask you to resist, I think it will actually be a help to you this morning to not try to keep pace uh, with the Scripture-to-Scripture of flipping, but to simply write down references so that you can stay focused on tracing the main theme of which is going to be the temple. Uh, trying to, to take the idea of the temple from Genesis to Revelation and see uh, what is the temple in essence? What does it have to do with us? What, if anything, does the idea of the temple mean for us as God's people and the fulfillment of what he's called us to do. And so our hope this morning will be to labor towards that end. And before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, there's so many things to be grateful for at this moment in this place. We confess our gratefulness for your word. We confess that it's true, that it's authoritative. And we confess that when we come to your word and find ourselves disagreeing with it, that that does necessarily make us wrong. And so in the kindness of your spirit and the power of your word, would you conform us and shape us into the direction of your son, that we would be able to image him more clearly or that we would walk with him uh, more closely. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. I'm going to set a working definition of temple for us at the beginning of our message. And I just ask that you receive it and then help me track it through the scripture. And so I'm going to argue, I think biblically so, that the temple, at maybe an overly simplistic definition, is that the temple is the place where the unique presence of God dwells with his people. And so file that away, that the temple ultimately is the place where the unique presence of God dwells with his people. And to begin our look into the scriptures, we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 6. Now this is a chapter that chronicles Solomon's construction of Israel's first temple. It's a small excerpt from that passage. And you'll notice that this largely deals with the interior design of the temple. And as I read it, there's going to be a phrase repeated three times. I want you to pay attention to that. To look what Solomon is stressing at the interior of the temple's architecture. 1 Kings 6, beginning in verse 29, reads as follows. Around all the walls of the house, referencing God's temple, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and opened flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So he also made 
for the entrance of the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. Two leaves of the one door were folding and two leaves of the other door were folding. And on them he carved cherubim and palm trees and opened flowers. He overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the card work. And he built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. Now admittedly, that is not the most action-packed passage of Scripture in your Bible. And it's one that is in a cursory reading of Scripture I would read and not think much about. And yet, it's with careful thinking about this that we begin to learn some depth about the temple of God. Now, it's peculiar if you're living in a fairly, fairly arid region, uh, certainly not a tropical one, to walk into the most majestic building ever built and designed in its culture and in the interior have your attention drawn to vegetation, to lushness, to flowers, and to trees. Now knowing Solomon building this temple for the worship of God, that there's no detail that is not carefully thought through nor meant to purpose something. So what is going on? Why in a temple in the middle of Israel would Solomon carve such rich vegetation? And I think that Solomon is not only wanting people's attention to be drawn to what's immediately before him, but he wants them to be drawn back to what once was lost. That to go into this temple is not simply to worship in that time and space, but it's to have their mind drawn back, I would argue, to the garden. Now why? Because biblically considered, I think the Garden of Eden is the first temple. Now certainly the word is not there and no physical structure is built. And yet, if the temple is the place where the unique presence of God dwells with his temple, the first time that shows up anywhere is in the garden. When God himself walked in the cool of the day with Adam and with Eve and take the entirety of creation into view that God making everything creates the world, all the land, all the water, all the animals, all the plants and yet amidst the expanse of creation in one singular location he plants a garden. That is where his people are. That is where his presence uniquely dwells. Consider with me further that not only does God plant a garden in one spot and, and places people there and walk with him there, but he then gives them a mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Subduing being farming language, agricultural language, meaning work the land. And as... Adam and Eve would have been fruitful and multiplied and their peoples would have spread across the earth. Their subduing the land would mean that the garden would go with them. And so you see early on in creation that God's unique presence was located with his people and God's design and desire was for his people and his unique presence to fill the earth. 
And yet, because of sin in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve's ability to fulfill that biblical mandate was disrupted and they were not able to do so in the way they were originally designed. But that does not mean God's plan changed. In fact, Habakkuk 2.14 would prophesy that there is a day coming when the knowledge of the Lord and his glory will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. So you have God uniquely dwelling with his people in the Garden of Eden. And then Genesis chapter 3, we just mentioned sin happens, disrupting that fellowship. And I think this only further adds to the argument that Solomon in 1 Kings 6 is drawing us back to the temple because we haven't yet talked about the two doors on which were folded leaves. Now process that with me. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, they realize that they're naked, they are covered in shame. They find fig leaves and create a covering for them. God in his goodness and grace, and I'll paraphrase here, comes alongside them and says, Adam and Eve, listen. The leaves can't do the job. Your attempt to cover your own shame is utterly inadequate. So what does he do? Presumably, sheds the blood of an animal. He makes animal skins. He covers them. That's the first time the gospel's put into action. That God himself comes from without to his people and removes their shame through a covering only he can make. It's a foreshadow of Jesus. And so when you're walking up to the temple now in Solomon's day and you're looking at those doors and you see the leaves, it's a reminder. It's a reminder that, hey, if you see those leaves and you think That your own religiosity, your own performance, your own self-conceived notion of goodness and morality, if you think all of that is good enough to cover your sin and shame, it's a message saying, don't come in. This place is no good for you. But if you see the leaves and you're reminded of what was once lost. And it tugs at your heart going, I can't cover my sin. My own fig leaves aren't good enough. There must be something that takes my sin, takes my guilt, takes my shame. There has to be another way that gets me in right standing with God. Then I think Solomon's saying, throw the doors open. And come into the temple. Because it's in the temple where God's unique presence dwelt that they began to learn how to get reconciled to God. And when they see the garden imagery, it starts to make their hearts pump to return to what once was lost. And the only way through is to acknowledge that the fig leaves don't work. And so here we have, I would argue, the first temple in Eden where God's presence uniquely dwelt. 
You have a reminder of that with Moses in the wilderness in a tabernacle, but that was temporary. You have it made uh, uh, more artistic and permanent with Solomon. And Solomon's temple is destroyed. Ezra and Nehemiah come back in. They build the efforts to rebuild it. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, we've got to ask the question, do we do away with it now? His Old Testament uh, temple imagery, has that served its purpose? Is there a new way to think through being God's people and what he's designed us for? And Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew 12, chapter 12 and makes a statement that for most of us, the impact of it will not resonate. But for a Jew in the first century, Jesus' claim is shocking, implausible, unable to be digested. Well, what does he say? Well, Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 is in, in a, a dialogue, a discussion with the Pharisees. Okay, and they're nagging him. They're poking at him. They're saying, hey, don't you know your disciples? Now, Jesus, it's, it's a Sabbath. And just so you know, we saw your disciples when they were walking with you pick some grain and eat it. Don't you know they can't do that, Jesus? Jesus goes on to remind these religious leaders of what David did during his day. And then Jesus makes a claim to being Lord of the Sabbath, which was his proclamation that he's God and he gets to regulate worship. And then he looks at the Pharisees. You can imagine maybe pausing for a minute and saying, hey, guys, just so you know, Something greater than the temple is here. Now, for a Jew, the temple was everything. Their identity, their pride, their existence as a people was joined to that physical structure. In fact, you could, you could argue, I think convincingly so, that one of the ways that they had gone uh, sideways with God at this time was they began to worship the structure more than the God it was meant to lead them to. The Jews loved the temple. To speak ill of it was to in some ways denounce your own heritage and identity. And what Jesus just said is say, just so you know, something greater than that temple is here. And you can picture them looking around saying, where? Show me, Jesus, something bigger, more grand, more beautiful, more prominent than that. And Jesus standing before them, I think he's trying to get them to see. Hey, guys, the temple is a unique place that God dwells with his people. It was once in a garden. It was temporary in the wilderness. It was made more permanent by this building. But it all pointed to me. See, do you know what's greater than an architectural structure? Jesus is saying, it's God in the flesh. I am God. I am his presence. I am dwelling amongst you. I am greater than the temple because I am the very one the temple was pointing you to. Something greater than the temple is here. God's unique presence in human form, living 
and dwelling with his people. In fact, in John chapter 1, when John records that God took on flesh and dwelt among them, the idea there is it's the word linked with the tabernacle. It's he tabernacled among them. It is a fulfillment of everything the garden, the tabernacle, and temple were pointing to. God's unique presence dwelling with his people. But Jesus was killed. He was resurrected and he ascended. So maybe the idea of the temple, I mean, if he was the greatest expression of it, and he was, that when he ascended, maybe the idea of the temple ascended with him. No longer in operation, no longer in use. And that wouldn't be the case if it weren't for the apostles. For both Paul and Peter continue with temple imagery. Now, what does Paul say? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Now, don't you know that you, plural, are the temple of the singular Holy Spirit? In fact, elsewhere, Paul would say, your own body is a temple. So this idea of temple imagery going all the way from the garden to Jesus, now through Paul coming to us, we learn has both an individual and corporate dimension. Let's take individual first. What does it mean for Paul to say that you and I, that our bodies are temples? Well, if the Bible's consistent and our working definition is true, this is what Paul is claiming. That when someone comes to faith in Christ, that when they repent of their sins, when they trust in his grace, when they are reborn, when the old has passed away, the new has come and new life comes in. What the Bible would say is the Holy Spirit indwells you. And what Paul says is that makes you a temple. Why? Because you become the place where God uniquely dwells with his people. Hmm. What does that mean for us? Well, the temple is a place where, in a sense, heaven met earth. The temple was the place where someone could go to learn how to get reconciled to God. The temple was the place where you went to hear God's word read, to learn who he is. What is he like? And Paul just said, well, that's now you and me. Which means that the spirit indwells me in a very real sense, I become a place where heaven meets earth. That I should be a place where someone can come to learn how to get reconciled to God. That I should be a location where someone can come and learn what is God like? What does he ask? How do I get to know him? What's his word say? That Paul says you and I are the place where God's presence uniquely dwells. Now that's individual. And yet it goes beyond that. He also says there's a corporate dimension of this. He's saying you, plural, probably in the original Greek, y'all, are the place where the unique presence of God also dwells. 
Which then means if we're stepping into that identity that the Bible already gives us, then First of Ann, Harvest Church, should be a place where someone can come in and taste a little bit of what it is for heaven to meet earth. Should be a place to come and learn how does humanity get reconciled to God. Should be a place where someone can learn about what is God like and what does it mean to be his, temp, uh, his people. For we are the place where God's presence uniquely dwells. So it's true in the garden. Disrupted but brought back into view of the tabernacle, made more permanent with the structure in Jerusalem, embodied ultimately by the person of Jesus, and via his spirit, the mandate passed on to us. And yet there's some things that can complicate it. And this is what Peter brings into view. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Listen to this. Verse 4, speaking of Jesus, verse 5, addressing us. As you come to him, that's Christ, a living stone rejected by men, speaking of Jesus' crucifixion, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, don't miss this, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, very clear temple imagery, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Peter brings this even more clearly into view. What does it mean? How does it actually work for the temple idea to be shifted to us as God's people? The first thing Peter says is, we got to start thinking of ourselves as living stones. Okay, now that doesn't make much sense unless we have some frame of reference of how the actual temple was built. Okay, so uh, when it was originally constructed, there are some pretty strict construction regulations placed upon temple workers. Uh, one of them was that in some sense it was a bit profane for you to hear the sound of tools and chisels uh, working at the actual temple mount. And so the, all the stones had to be carved a couple miles away. That's where the work was done. That's where they were shaped, measured, carved. And then those stones would have been carted, you know, the one or two miles to the actual temple location and then placed where they're supposed to go. Now you can imagine, some of you have built some things, some of you better than others. And you know, if you're cutting a board or measuring something, if you get an eighth or a quarter of an inch off, you can get another piece of wood and cut it, no problem. You get one of these stones wrong and you're toting a two-ton stone back a couple miles to get it redone. So you can imagine the meticulous nature of the work that was demanded and yet the challenge of the task, the two locations of where the chiseling and carving was done and where they were transported to, the challenge it would be. So they developed a system that in the place where the work was done, the master masons on every single stone would put a unique mark. That mark dictated where that stone was going to be placed. And if that stone was put in any other spot outside of where it was ordained to go, 
that structure would not function or hold together in the way it was intended to. So when Peter's writing, and he's obviously speaking of the temple, he talks about a priesthood, sacrifice, a house. That when he says, you and I are living stones, he's saying each and every one of us has been marked by the hand of the master mason. We have been indwelt and gifted by the Holy Spirit. And God has ordained that his body, the church, only fully functions in the way it's intended to when each of us is properly placed. Serving the Lord and one another in the way in which he has carved us to. But here's what complicates it. If we could have gone to see the temple, we can't. Both temples are destroyed. The first one by Nebuchadnezzar, the second one by Rome. But if we could have seen it, we would have gone and marveled at everything we saw. The beauty of the stones. So many of them, huge, pristine, prominent, visible. And yet... So many of the stones that made those stones possible were unable to be seen. For they were in the foundation. Not visible. Out of sight. But vital. And this is true. Doesn't mean it should be this way, but it's just simply true. There's a proclivity in a lot of us and in the church that certain gifts are, are, are celebrated more than others. Some roles, just organizational, are more prominent than others, more visible than others. And if you catch yourself feeling like one of those stones, you're just not quite visible. You're serving, you're laboring, you want to glorify and honor God. What can happen for you if you're not careful is a little bit of bitterness and resentfulness can set in. Why don't they recognize me? Why don't I have a platform? I want to be seen. Be careful. Because in that is a choice to labor for the Lord or for men. To live a life of content service to God. Or striving for human glory. For if we start to get sideways there, then that's when bitterness, strife, and divisiveness can creep in, and it's going to be hard for someone to come into a church and taste heaven meeting earth when the stones are dissatisfied with the way the carpenter carved them. There's another side of it, too. Some of you may have been marked or gifted or called by God to teach, to lead. You lead a class, or, or you're someone people seek wisdom and counsel from. The temptation there is to inflate yourself above your station. To maybe think your stone's a little too vital, too important. Well, then by your own arrogance and pride, dissension, strife can set in. And it's going to be hard for someone to taste heaven meeting earth when you are kind of just setting yourself up to be heaven itself. And so what Peter does is he, yes, he puts more flesh on it, brings it more clearly of 
What does it mean for us as living stones to come together, to be the spiritual house, to embrace temple imagery, to be the place God dwells with his people? But we can see some of the challenges as well to being content with what God's called us to do. The last piece, and we'll look at our, our closing scripture this morning. Uh, how do we actually do it? It's, it's, a, it's, I think, good theory. It sounds biblically true. I think it is biblically true. But what does it actually look like? How does someone come into First of Ann or Harvest Church or interact with the people of God and sense God's presence? Taste heaven meeting earth. I think it happens when we do things like love one another, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, speak the truth to one another, be gracious to one another, meet the needs of one another. All the New Testament imperatives that tell us what it is to be the people of God helps other people see what it looks like for God to live with his people. And so if we embrace this, that if we take on what the Bible says is true of us, then individually we leave here this morning going, if I know Christ, and if I've been redeemed by his grace alone, I leave church and go to my neighborhood, my workplace, and my family as a temple of the Holy Spirit where heaven meets earth, where people can taste what it is to walk with God. That's a weighty challenge. Maybe for some of you it's a convicting one. I look at my life sometimes and go, ooh, it better be, it'd probably be better to quarantine myself today. Lest someone someone think they're tasting God because they're not. It's my flesh. I had a professor at Dallas Seminary. He's gone to be with the Lord. This was 14 years ago. Dr. Dwight Pentecost, which I'm not convinced was his legal name. It's a little too perfect for someone in ministry. But Dr. Dwight Pentecost, I still remember this 14 years later in a chapel message, asked us this question. He said, if you're the only person anyone ever met, what would they believe was true about God? Now, some days that's hard for me to ask myself. Because on some days they believe God's pretty harsh, fairly unforgiving, not very gentle, not gracious, but demanding. And it's in those moments of conviction that we're thankful that Hebrews tells us we approach the throne of grace and confidence. We can be reconciled to God. That's forgiven. We begin to walk with him anew every morning. Let me tell you, his mercies are new every morning. But when we leave here today, if you know Jesus, the Bible says you're a temple. I'm a temple. We collectively are a temple. The place where God dwells uniquely in his creation. So that one day, his whole earth hears and knows the glorious message and reality of the gospel of Jesus. Now, this is a talk that I've given a couple times, taught on a couple places, and this is where I always stopped. And in thinking about it this week, I realized just how silly and incomplete that was because this is not where the Bible stops using temple language. It begins in the, a temple called the garden, 
And if you read the end of the story, it ends in a temple called the New Jerusalem. In the midst of you know, everything we've been in since January, it's hard not to get consumed by what's directly in front of us. And I was blessed by the Lord in the reading of Revelation 21 this week to be reminded of the end of the story. And I know, and this is not wrong, I get it, I do it too. Uh, it's easy right now to long for things to get back to normal. Uh, and it saddens me to think that that's the main way we'll process it. Because instead of longing for things to get back to the way they were, I think Revelation 21 compels us to long for the ways that they've never quite been, at least since Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Listen to where we're headed. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty and the Lamb. For the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there, there will be no night. Adam and Eve once walked with God. And one day, we will too. In uninterrupted fellowship, in a place that the Bible says the temple, the ultimate temple, is directly in front of us. And we will behold him with unveiled faces in all of his glory. But until then, the scripture says, as the people of God, let's be the place that shows the world what it looks like for heaven to meet earth. Would you pray with me? Father, we certainly ask that in your divine kindness and by the power of your spirit that you would enable us in this direction. That when we are living out of step with what it looks like for you to live with your people, that, that we would repent. That we would joyfully and confidently receive your grace anew each morning. That each morning you would empower us to remember that you dwell with us in a unique way and that we get to carry that message of reconciliation to the world. And by your power, when people come into our churches, God, we pray that they would see and taste the uniqueness of your glory and your presence. And one day you will make it true that there's a day coming when all's made new when your glory will cover the ends of the earth as the waters do the sea. And until that day, may you make us ever faithful to the reality that we are a temple of God. Amen.